0: Great, it's really great to be with you, whether you're in the room or online. I'm really excited to be picking up this question of can anything good come from Christianity? And the reason I'm kind of excited to pick it up and walk through it with you this morning is because if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have given you a forceful and scathing, of course not, don't be ridiculous. My answer would have been a forceful and scathing no. I'd have told you that Christianity has nothing whatsoever to offer to life's big questions or the deepest longings of the human heart. And yet, what I would have been offering you is a, a scathing one-star review of a place that I'd never been. A friend who, um, I don't know, we, we share some jokes occasionally. He, he shared some things. with me. I don't know why these tickled me. They just really made me laugh. They're, they're one-star reviews of uh, famous landmarks around the world. And there's something about them where it's not even that anything's gone wrong in the event. It's just that somebody didn't like it. And so they find really creative ways to dismiss them. So um, I'll let you guess which ones they are, maybe. Uh If you like old rocks, you'll think it's fine. Just the, like, the casual disdain in that question, in that, in that for Stonehenge. Okay, how, how about this one? The queues were too long. And the thing itself is unimpressive. It is a total waste of money. Save yourself the time. Stand on the edge of the dock and throw your money in the water. that—that right. That is the Statue of Liberty. And, uh, and the last one, this is my personal favorite. I have been to a number of so-called landmarks in my time. But what is this? Four hours for what amounts to essentially an overblown ditch. That is the Grand Canyon, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And a natural wonder, so spectacular, it creates its own weather system, an overblown sandy ditch. I was a one-star critic of Christianity. Look, I I suspect anybody that's calling the Grand Canyon an overblown ditch has probably never been to it. But I was a one-star critic. Maybe they did, I don't know. I was a one-star critic of Christianity despite, despite the fact that I'd never been, I'd never kicked the tires of it, I'd never investigated it, I'd never explored it. And yet I came to have a kind of Antiques Roadshow moment. I guess one of the reasons i would never explored it is, be- is because it was just so familiar, I assumed it had no value. And, and I don't know if you're into the Antiques Roadshow, and um, now I've phrased it that way. I'm not really sure how possible to be into the Antiques Roadshow it is. But anyway, I don't know if you're into it, but it lives off two things. It lives off the disappointed face of people who thought their thing was going to be worth a lot, but it's not. But the other thing that it really thrives off is when someone brings like this old dish, and it's just they've baked in it. And, and, and because it's been in the family for a while, because it was familiar, they assumed it was worthless, but when they look closer, they find out it's priceless. Now, that's what it thrives off. And, and, and I had a kind of antiques roadshow moment. So let me, t- let me tell you some of the reasons why I'd have given you a scathing note, and then we can um, unpack some of them. Maybe these, these will be the same for you. First thing is this. I mean, I've got a long list, actually, but we'll just pick a few. It is deeply anti-intellectual and unscientific to embrace faith of any kind and Christianity in particular. So if if you're going to embrace Christianity, the only way you would do it, I would have said, is to leave your brain at the door. Secondly, not only was it anti-intellectual to my mind, but it was completely irrelevant. It had nothing good to offer. Nothing good could come of Christianity in my mind because it it portrayed a, a moral vision, A vision of a life well lived in strictly negative terms. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That's righteousness. So so it had no room in its definition of a life well lived for beauty. And so therefore it had nothing to offer. All it was was a guilt motive offering a life of restrictions. I was guilty enough already, so I wasn't very interested. Third thing. Are we on three? Don't know. The people who go in for it are weird. I mean... So a guy called Charlie Maxey, actually a little, little clip of him in the video, put it like this. Like I felt about Jesus like I felt about Elvis. So I hadn't heard much of his stuff. What I heard I liked, but his fan club really freaked me out. Same thing, underwhelming people. Why would I want to join that team And yeah, of course, it was familiar. So sure, thank you Christianity, you've given us the foundation of our current beliefs and ethical system, but you've served your purpose, jog on, humanity will continue without you. So those might not be the things for you, they might be different things for you. And a guy called Michael Ramsden put it in really helpful terms, look, there's basically three root questions. Is it reasonable, is it desirable, and is it true? see the first group of questions that people ask is do I have to leave my brain at the door is it coherent is it, is it reasonable is it rational is there evidence but the second thing is this that there are things that we see in the world around us or people we encounter which make us believe that at some level love is either not at the heart of the Christian God or it's not at the heart of the Christian faith is it good is it desirable and lastly is it true does, does it work Can can it actually offer anything? And so I can't even begin to touch on answers to all those questions, but what I can do this morning is offer you an invitation to explore. And so we're going to do that by looking at a book called John. And uh, in chapter 1 of that book, he's a guy who spent life with Jesus and then put his cards on the table, wrote a book in order that people might encounter Jesus in their own lives. And so in John chapter 1, from verse 43... It's about an encounter that a sceptical guy has with Jesus himself. And it says this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and whom the prophets also wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Right, I just want to tee up this moment a little bit for us to help us understand why it connects to us. This guy called Nathaniel, the way we are introduced to him, we learn some things about him. So we learn that he is waiting for something. He is a guy that is living with profound questions. And on the surface, his questions don't look like ours. But when you get down to the root, they're exactly the same. See, even, even, if, even if they grow in different soil, the root of the questions are the same thing. And, and they're probably something like this for him. Why is the world the way it is? I mean, I mean, why? If God is like he says he is, and as good as Christianity claims he is, if he's promised so much to his people, why does it look like we've been abandoned? If, 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 is God ever going to come good on his promises, right? That's basically the essence of his question. And that might not be our question. That might not be your big question. But, but yet, you heard in that video, we are all living with big questions. We're all living with them. And sometimes, as it was said, the little ones drown out the bigger ones. Like Questions like, what shirt am I going to put on? Drown out the bigger questions. Or, or the questions like, shall I change job? Or will you marry me? Drown out the biggest ones like, why are we here? What is life for? Is there more to life than this? Where am I going? All those questions that you heard those people saying and resonating with. And, and we do something. We go through life where we pencil in an answer quickly and get on and then forget about it. We we. Bury the big questions under busyness. Like we we bury them under the perpetual pursuit of something because the noise of entertainment or, or filling our senses with something or chasing something can mean we can just live with the penciled answers for a little bit longer. What's wrong with the world? Like, but what, what is wrong with us? What's wrong with me? Why do we hurt the people that we love the most? Why can't I keep my own standards, let alone the standards that anybody else gives to me? What's wrong with the world and what's wrong with me? And who could do anything to put it right? Who could do anything to put them right? And so we let those little questions drown out the biggest questions, like, why am I here? And, and this guy, Nathaniel experiences what a whole load of us experience. He finds that a crisis brings his questions to the surface, and then a friend helps him explore the answers that he would penciled in. He's living in a crisis because he's living in a time when his whole nation is being occupied by people. He's in the middle of a massive crisis that has gone on for years and then a friend called Philip comes to him and says I found the one you're looking for and he's invited to kick the tires of the answer that he's penciled in to fill the big gaps same thing happened for me with a friend I it was, it was too late for me to be honest, I met a guy called Mark at school, and I, you know, I just had this kind of casual disdain with, for Christians to kind of go alongside my complacent disbelief. And so, made friends with God, we shared the same stupid sense of humour. We both loved rugby, we both loved music, we thought Led Zeppelin just were the best fans in history. I liked you too, but he didn't, but that was fine. And, and, so, and so we struck up this friendship, and then afterwards I found out he was a Christian. It's too late, really, after that. So I sort of had to plow on with the friendship. And he introduced me to a group of thinking Christians. And I thought that was an oxymoron. But there they were. I met them, and it turned out, not only had they thought about what they believed, but they'd thought about what I believed and found it wanting. It's like they, they had thought about the evidence for why they believed what they did, and then they were able, in this way, they, were just, they just put up with my barrage of criticism towards them, right? Because they, they just seemed to have this sickening assurance that somebody loved them. And so I could turn up and be utterly brutal about the thing that was the defining thing about them, and they loved me anyway. They could look past the absolute mess of a person that I was and love me anyway. And they, they just messed with my head because this wasn't the kind of Christianity that I'd expected. Here were these people who I thought had moral compliance as the basis of their lives and yet they seemed to have a flow of self-giving love going in which meant self-giving love flowed out. So they just messed with my head and then they'd actually thought about stuff. And so then they were kicking the tires of my question. They made me really, really think. I mean, if I'm right, if, if I was right, that we are just matter floating through time, then where do you find meaning in life, and what's it all about? I, had a, we, I, had a, I worked in the government for a couple of years, and my, they released a, a new document management system, an online document management system that was going to solve all of our problems, and it was called Meridio. I'm sure they're still going, and I'm sure they're great, and if we bodged it up, I'm sure it was user error, but... It became a running joke. It sounded Latin-ish, which kind of gave it authority. But no one spoke Latin, so we assumed it was the Latin for bin. Because whenever you put a document in there, it was just gone forever. I, I saw my boss, it even, beca- even became, I've been meridioed. It actually became a thing. My, my boss, I saw her spend six hours trying to recover a document that took two hours to write, because she couldn't face the reality that she had achieved nothing with her time. These people questioned me, look, if all of life and history is a Word document that's not getting saved, what is the point? What is it about? How can you find meaning if that's true? If, if, if my guru of Bertrand Russell was right, and that the temple of man's achievement would be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins... If I couldn't affect the outcome ultimately, then how do I find something meaningful to do? And you could say, all right, well, what I could do then is I could invest on a kind of temporary level, one another with significance, which means that if I, if I do something kind for you, then it's significant, but how do I do that with integrity when I have a view of a self which has been stripped of a soul? Where does the value come from? Where does, where does my value come from? Where, how can I find meaning if space-time history is limited to that, and then it's all going to become dust and be gone in the end. Because, because I can say do kind things, but, but then I hit in another problem. Because questions like, like beauty and, and meaning and goodness, ultimately, when you boil it down, are arbitrary categories projected onto a senseless world by the chattering synaps- synapses of my irrational brain. Not even a mind. And so they just gently nudged the tires of that. And so there you go. Have a, have a quick question. That, that's the answer that I'd pencilled in. Can it hold the weight of a life? Can it can it stand up to a crisis? Like like, how can you find meaning in that? Right. That after that, I stopped getting invited to parties. But anyway, that might not be your questions. Your questions might be completely different. And the kind of crisis that you encounter might be different. Did you hear that guy in the video? His crisis was getting what he wanted. Really. See, one of the ways we can do it is if we keep ourselves in a cycle of perpetual busyness, we can bury the big questions and not look at what we'd penciled in. But if you get the thing that you're pursuing and find that that is wanting, then that's a real crisis. Michael Schumacher, I don't know what championship he won, probably like the 20th, functionally ruining the sport as a spectacle for spectators. Anyway, afterwards, Schumacher said this, (laughs) and the temptation to do a German accent now is almost overwhelming, but we're going to avoid it. He said this. He said the championship... Now, I might be doing a German accent, but I'm just really bad at it. You don't know. So he said this. The championship was great for me, and I've had great feelings, but there must be more than what I have. There must be more to life than this. Jim Carrey... A lot of you are too young. Like... I mean, imagine Will Ferrell, right? It's a like peak comedian, but even more of a superstar. Where they just create movies so that he can be in them. <laughs> no plot. We'll work out the plot later. Catchy title. Jim Carrey blockbuster. The guy was like a mega superstar, and he said this: "I hope that everyone gets rich and famous and gets everything they want, so they realise it's not the answer." There's a special kind of crisis that comes from getting what you've been pursuing. And finding it wanting. So here we go, a guy called Philip comes up to Nathaniel and says, I found the guy you're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Not that dump. <laughs> what Dave of Basingstoke has got the big do you know what I mean? always people do that. People always do that. Like that's like going to someone in Reading. And saying, "I found the answers to life's big questions from a brickie in Basingstoke." I say, "Basingstoke, can anything come good come from there?" And this guy—he's not even from anywhere good, right? He's not from Jerusalem. He's not from like the spiritual elite. He's from Cana up the road. Do you know what I mean? I mean Winchester looks down on both of them. His first reaction is, "That is so underwhelming that what I'm looking for can't come from there." And that is exactly what I would have said about Christianity. Uh, There is something, because the packaging was underwhelming, there cannot be anything good at its essence. And at its core, come on, not Basingstoke. I felt about Christianity like he did about Nazareth. But this passage shows us, if you bite the bullet and you embrace going to somewhere underwhelming in Christianity, or at least where the package is underwhelming, you'll encounter two things. The passage shows us two things. Firstly, you encounter the person at its essence. And secondly, you encounter the good news of what he's done. And we're just going to look at that really quickly. Firstly, when you encounter him, you realize he is nothing like what you thought he was going to be. Like he is infinitely better than the person you thought you were going to find there. I remember when I was challenged to explore for myself, get beyond the packaging and the weirdness, and get to the essence and look at it. And and I encountered these kind of words that Jesus said, which basically are quite big for a peasant carpenter I am the bread of life. Anybody who comes to me will never hunger. Not only is that an outrageous claim, right? But do you hear the language of that? That—that that is the language, not of moral compliance, but of receiving. Like I—I I am the bread of life, so if you receive me, you will be spiritually satisfied forever. I mean, I, just what a claim! He wasn't—that—he wasn't. That, that, he wasn't asking me to buck my ideas up. There was something in what he claimed to do. He, he came and said this, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. That is, that's the language of mission, right? That's not the language of, well, I just happened to be here and I've heard some nice things and so let me just tell you them. That is the language of loving pursuit. Like, I've come and... get get this, right? This isn't just written down for us. When you read it in the text, you think, oh, that's interesting, like, written down for posterity's sake. He was saying that to a group of people. Now, imagine standing up to a group of people and saying, I have come so that you can have life. Um, I've got it, actually. So, like, thank you, but I'm not sure I need what you've got to offer. But Je- Jesus is saying this. There is a massive difference between being alive and having life. Jesus, Jesus claims there is a life to the full that he can bring you into. And then he did, then he did this. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever read John's Gospel. Jesus does a thing, which again, peasant carpenter people, this is a radical thing to do. He redefines eternal life completely. He, I mean, okay, you maybe you don't believe me. Let's do it. He says this. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That means he changes the definition from a place that you go to to a living, loving relationship that you enjoy now. The essence of his claim then is that he can offer you forgiveness from the past through receiving something and hope in the future through knowing him, but that you can know new life today today. That, that he can bring something into your life so transforming. A guy called Ranking Wilborn, and look, look, if I ever change my name, that's a candidate on the list, right? If I Ranking Wilborn, put it like this: Eternal life, according to Jesus, begins in this life when Jesus joins His life to yours. That is an enormous claim for somebody to make. That's huge. That is that is massive. Let me put it like this. So there's this. Um, there was a guy at my school called Tom. And um, the story sort of has come to me in stages, and I suspect it got played with at every stage of transmission, so that at this point, only the names, dates, and events have been changed. Okay, so just bear that in mind. Take it with a pinch of salt as you get there. But um, the story went like this. It was a couple of years ahead of me at secondary school, and they went on a school trip to the trenches. And so during one of the breaks... Tom snuck off and went to an area where you were not meant to go. And as he was walking around that area on on his own, he found something that looked an awful lot like an unexploded shell. So he looked at it, and he thought about it, and he took it, and he put it in his rucksack, and forgot about it. Took it with him, they they put it down as a goalpost, to play the lunchtime game of football. He kept it with him for the entire trip until the point that just on the coach on the way back, the teacher said, right, we're having an amnesty. So if anybody's got any of those little bangers, remember those little red things that somehow came back from school trips. If anyone's got a banger, hand it to me now. You will not get in trouble. Okay. That's a reckless vow, people. Okay, that's a reckless vow. So Tom reached into his bag And he took it out and said, does this count? And the teacher just just calmly took everybody off the coach. And then they calmly evacuated the ferry. And when they found out that it was live, the person who'd been in goal went quiet for a week. That got hammed up in a chain of transmission somewhere, I'm sure about it. But look, the point is this. The reason that's impactful and the reason that gets a couple of gas, is this. It is crazy to make a superficial assessment of something that explosive. Because one of two things must be true about it. It is either a dud or it is life-changing power. But the one thing it can't be is quite important. C.S. Lewis said this, look, If true, Christianity is of ultimate importance. And if it's untrue, it is of no importance. But the one thing it can't be is quite important. Jesus claimed that eternal life begins in this life when he joins his life to yours. That's explosive. Let's not make a superficial a sense of it. See, It's either leave your life to find it important or it's a lifeless relic from another era. But it can't be quite important. So here's this guy who had what I had, really, an encounter of these words and discovering that when he met Jesus, he was nothing like the person that he thought he was going to encounter. I found myself saying exactly what he says. How do you know me? How do you know me? He is nothing like what I expected. There is, See, there's something about the fact that he comes from Nazareth that reveals the character of his love. You hear, that, hear that phrase we sang from, from, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. in Nazareth, like there is a unceasing self-giving in his love. Like he, he comes from Nazareth to make a point, like he embraces the life of a servant. He's, he's worthy of all our worship, and yet he humbles himself. He comes weak and vulnerable and unimpressive. It's just like a symbol of the quality and the character and the self-giving servant nature of the love in the person that you encounter there. That's just what Jesus is like. You meet him and you realize love really is at the essence of the character of God. And it really is at the heart of the Christian faith because he's at the heart of the Christian faith. Receiving what he has done is at the heart of the Christian faith. And then you hang around with him and he kind of shines a light on you. And you move from saying, how do you know me to saying uh oh you know me like you hang around with his love and you realize i don't love like that there are things that i've thought and said and done for which i need forgiveness and in this conversation it moves on you see nathaniel whatever jesus says to him it resonates and so he says wow i think you are the person that i'm looking for and jesus says you've sinned nothing yet You've seen nothing yet. He encounters him and he uses some grand names about him, but but until you have encountered what he's done, you really haven't encountered the essence of his love. Until you've explored what he's done for you, you really can't understand who he is. Unless you've explored the cross, then you've really never been to the essence of Christianity. The way he's arrived tells us something, but the way he dies for us in our place shows us everything. Everything. It shows us everything about what he's like, about how truly good he is. It shows us everything about the utter goodness of God. It's still challenging, by the way, and it's still confusing, by the way, but love really is at the heart of the character of God. This is basically a paraphrase of what he says to Nathaniel, and it's weird because he's got, you know, it's confusing, but he basically says this, you've seen nothing yet. He picks up this old dream that some guy has way back at the beginning of the story about something bridging heaven and earth. And Jesus says, I have come to bring the presence of God to you, but you're going to see me do something which brings you into the very presence of God. You. I'm going to do something for you. Something that you receive. Something which is a gift. It's why he doesn't tell parables about sheep finding shepherds. Is why he tells parables about shepherds going for sheep. And when he finds it, he doesn't just let it loose and give it new instructions. He carries it home. He shines a light on us to show us there is something about us. There is a kind of pervasive lostness, which means even if I knew the way, I couldn't walk in it to get there. He is the one who carries us. And so I want you to see now you understand the wisdom of why he comes from Nazareth, because Jesus paves the way for grace. He paves the way for grace. A guy called Tim Keller on this passage says this, Christianity isn't just for the strong. It's not for those who've got it together or for the morally upstanding. It's for everyone. And it is especially for those who admit that it really counts their weak who admit that their flaws aren't superficial, that our hearts are deeply disordered and that we can't rescue ourselves. And there is such hope in that because a guy called Joshua Ryan Butler said this, it means the real question isn't, did we jump high enough or did we work hard enough or walk long enough to find God? The question is, do we want to be found? Do we want to bring our whole lives vulnerably before the God who has come for us in love to redeem us, the God who is hunting down his world? He lays the problem of our sin before us in order that when he he overcomes it, we understand the depths of his love to crash through our distance and crush our idols because he is dying to bring us home. Forgiveness from the past, hope for the future, and new life today. It's worth exploring. Maybe the band could come up. I just want to just reiterate, in case you missed the meta-narrative of the morning, we'd love you to explore. And we'd love you to explore with this friendly group of people. And I just want to help you take a practical step. You have my permission here and now to use your phone to go to citygate.church forward slash alpha. You have my permission to do that here in the building. I would love for you to do that. If you're watching online, do that now. Like we're going to close in a song at the moment, but that just gives you plenty of opportunity to find the webpage. So, like, every bit of information you need about when it starts and how you connect in, you'll find it there. I just really want to encourage you. If you've never explored, I'd encourage you to do that this morning. If you've, if you've never kicked the tires of it, if you are skeptical and you want evidence, can I encourage you? Do it. Come along. Ask, ask your biggest questions. No question is out of bounds, as they said on that video. So come, ask for the evidence, check if it's coherent, and then when it comes to the... The answers that you've penciled in, consider the possibility that the issue is you've not embraced your doubt enough. So come with your doubt. And I just want to give a moment that if you are searching, if you are longing, I just want to encourage you to take a step to Nazareth. We believe it. We're persuaded by the evidence, but it's not just that we believe it, it's that we've encountered it. We've experienced the goodness of finding the persons at the essence of Christianity. When you find that gift, you'll find out it's five stars. Absolutely five stars. And so I want to give a moment now. If you have never before, and you're just ready, like you're like, Alpha sounds great, but right now, I want to respond to that in this moment. I just want to lead a prayer. If you're here, you can say it inwardly in your heart. If you're watching online, again you can just I'll leave a pause you can in the gap after I say a line you can pray it too father i admit that you are good i admit that i have sought love in things other than you i admit that i've worshipped things which aren't you And so there's things that I've thought and said and done for which I need forgiveness. But I believe that you so love me that you sent your beloved son. Jesus, I believe you can deliver on your promises. I accept the gift of your forgiveness and that hope and this new life. And I commit to follow you I thank you that you died to save me from the consequences of my own life. That I wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And that I can trust you completely to lead the new life that you give me. Amen.